Teaching is our passion. We at the Wall Street Skinny are proud to announce that we've joined the advisory board for the iConnections Funds for Teachers initiative, focused on supporting the Ron Clark Academy and its pioneering teaching methods. Through Funds for Teachers, iConnections is dedicated to empowering educators nationwide by providing access to RCA's professional development opportunities. Events are being organized in major cities throughout the year to fundraise and support this incredibly important cause. All proceeds from these events will be directly donated to the Ron Clark Academy, specifically to financially aid teachers so they can participate in RCA's groundbreaking training programs. Please click on the link in our show notes to register for an event in the city nearest you. This is The Wall Street Skinny, a podcast devoted to exploring the financial services industry and making the world of Wall Street accessible to everyone. Hey guys, welcome back to The Wall Street Skinny. I'm Jen. I'm Kristen. And if this is your first time listening, welcome. We are two lifelong friends with a combined 23 years of experience working and teaching on Wall Street. We are on a mission to demystify the world of high finance and democratize access to some of the most elite careers in the world. But today, (laughs) today's episode, it's going to be a little bit different from our past episodes. We're going to be talking Mm -hmm. about something that is totally different that Mm -hmm. does impact the world of Wall Street more than you'd think. Yeah. So we've noticed that you can't read anything these days in the financial press or listen to a podcast and not see people talking about Ozempic. So if you've never heard of this before because you are living under a rock, like my husband, um, who, by the way, had not heard of it, but people basically use the term Ozempic colloquially to refer to someone who is taking a class of drugs called GLP-1 agonist for weight loss. Now, ironically, Ozempic, active ingredient, semaglutide, it's technically not for weight loss. It is a drug technically approved to treat type 2 diabetes. But it was discovered that people who were on this drug lost a lot of weight. So Ozempic started to be prescribed off-label for people to lose weight. And then in 2021, the FDA approved it for weight loss, but it was then marketed under the name Wagovi. But Wagovi, Ozempic, both manufactured by Novo Nordis. There's Manjaro, manufactured by Eli Lilly. And there's others. But again, broadly speaking, whenever someone says Ozempic, they're talking about someone taking one of these types of drugs to lose weight. You were the one who, who <laughs> told me about it because all the Real Housewives started showing yes. up. Andy Cohen said everyone started magically showing up to film mm-hmm. the Real Housewives 25 pounds thinner. And this yeah. season of the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills has finally just started airing. And I watched the first episode and Erica Jane shows up, you know, 25 pounds later. And everyone's like, what did you change? And she was like, oh, I went through menopause. It was my hormones. And Dorit Kemsley goes, oh, is it hormones spelled O-Z-E-M-P-I-C? Yeah. And so there's all this speculation of like, who's on it? Who's not on it? Mm -hmm. It's become used so much for cosmetic purposes. Right. I mean, the manufacturers of these drugs, their share prices have gone through the roof. I mean, in the last... 12 months, you saw Novo Nordis, their share price doubled. Scott Galloway, he said that he thinks this is going to be bigger than AI. There's been tons of speculation about downstream effects on markets and single name stocks. So people are saying that airlines going to now be more profitable because they'll have to spend less on fuel. And like Walmart's mm-hmm. going to be making less because people are going to be spending less money. And actually, even a few days ago, Krispy Kreme, right? The donut company, they got downgraded due to worry that Ozempic will impact demand. And then, you know, you have all these high profile, as we said, like all the Real Housewives, I mean, Elon Musk, all these people are 
on it or people speculate they're on it, which obviously like impacts culture and all of that. It's pretty clear there's potentially some amazing benefits, right? Ranging mm-hmm. from things, not only helping with insulin resistance and weight loss for people who actually can reverse disease processes because it improve health outcomes by losing weight. But crazy enough, it also seems that it could help with things like addiction. They don't know exactly why it works, but they speculate mm-hmm. it might lower like the dopamine hits. And so there's clearly some really positive potential benefits. Mm-hmm. At the same time, what I haven't seen anyone talk about is what are the negative effects? And when we say negative effects, I'm not talking the possible increased risk of a thyroid tumor, right? Or an intestinal blockage, like real- Which by the way, sounds really bad. Deadly, <laughs> yeah, right. Or the the long-term consequences, because we don't know what happens when you're on these long-term. I mean, when you don't know and understand the exact mechanism of how things work, there is potential downsides. Again, there could be none, but we, we don't, just don't know. But for people who are healthy, so people who they're going on it for cosmetic reasons to quote unquote, lose the last five to 10 pounds, Mm -hmm. when you lose weight and your body doesn't need or want to, that actually can become a health problem. So we're going to get into that. There are real consequences to chronically under fueling due to the fact that these drugs don't change your set point. So either you take these drugs forever, like, yay, Novo Nordisk stock price, or you come off it to regain the weight and then possibly then some. So our podcast obviously focuses on Wall Street, a place that lends itself to being one that is incredibly unhealthy for reasons we're going to get into. And so because of that, we are bringing on Lindsay Lusson today, a registered dietitian, to help us work through two questions. So number one, how can you stay healthy on Wall Street in an environment that is set up for overconsumption of food, alcohol, right? You have client entertainment, you have long hours, which obviously impact your sleep, limit your ability to exercise or get movement throughout the day as well as with so much pressure to look a certain way, what are some things to possibly think about if you are feeling the pressure to maybe take Ozempic or whatever, what are the potential health impacts of that? And is there a trade we're not thinking about? (laughs) Because what is the, like, (laughs) if it has negative health consequences for people who are taking this, and like, we know that there is long-term health consequences from underfueling, what is maybe another trade that you could get in on there? Before we get in though, I do want to say a couple of things. So Jen, Lindsay, and I all have a tremendous amount of privilege. We are all three thin white women living in a society that has set thin as the standard for beauty. Had we lived in the Middle Ages when beauty standards were different and you were considered beautiful if you were in a larger body, we'd be effed. And while we have struggled in the past with eating disorders, disordered eating, something that we are going to get into, and actually Lindsay and I We both were told that we would need IVF to have kids just because we screwed our bodies up so much by under eating. What we have not experienced is what people who are in larger bodies basically experience every day. I feel like fat phobia is one of the few remaining areas where discrimination isn't seen as a problem because people believe that your body size is fully within your control. But just as there is diversity in height or skin color, there's also diversity in body size. And part of that's pure genetics. So studies of identical twins separated at birth show that the strongest predictor of a child's BMI is actually their birth parents' BMI, not the adopted parents. There is the socioeconomic impact. There is the disease process impact. So you could, for example, lose a ton of weight if you have cancer. You could gain a lot of weight if you have thyroid issues or insulin resistance. And also like environmental impacts in the sense of what is all this PFAS in our environment doing to people's bodies? So anyway, Jen and I, we are all for people doing whatever they want to give themselves any asymmetric upside to succeed in life. Literally, that is what our podcast is about, giving you asymmetric upside. So if you are going on Ozempic so that people will treat you how anyone smaller is literally treated for doing nothing. I mean, look, 
we're all for that. I mean, <laughs> Jen and I, like, we get Botox. Like, I dye my hair. Oh, yeah. And, I think yeah. whatever you need to do, as long as you're not hurting anyone else in the process, mm-hmm. go for it. When you first told yeah. me about Ozempic, Kristen, I was like, wait a second. There's something you can take and you'll just lose like the last seven, five to 10 pounds. Mm-hmm. I'd put out a couple of pounds in the spring and I was like, this sounds great. And I like asked my doctor about it and she was like, no, no, no that, that's not like, this is not mm-hmm. what it's for. But it is, you know, what so many people are using it for. But I totally asked about it. And trust me, if I ever found myself in a situation where I was trying to lose some weight, I would 100% consider it. Because I think mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with it if it's a decision that you're making on an educated basis and you're not hurting mm-hmm. anyone else in the process. Now, there are some knock-on side effects due to shortages and stuff like that where you, yeah. know, you might argue that you can be hurting other people in the process. Right. And, and we'll get into that. But yeah. um, philosophically, no. I am mm-hmm. not opposed to it one bit. Yeah. And I actually also really despise it when I hear people say that taking these drugs is a shortcut for eating healthier and working out just because we'll get into this. I had wildly disordered eating for most of my life. And Mm -hmm. it was ironic because when I was in that state, I was praised all the time. People are like, oh my gosh, you're so healthy. Like you don't eat carbs. Oh my God, you work out every day. It, it, It actually was incredibly unhealthy. And I actually had to change all of that so that I could have kids. But what I what I did discover is that when I was controlling everything I was eating, right, and I was tracking every calorie and exercising hours a day, it actually did not affect my weight. Or it did, but it did it the opposite way of what you would expect. And so when I was able to recover, I actually ended up smaller than when I was working so hard. So I had experienced how like, quote unquote, trying super hard and putting all this effort in not only didn't work, but it was counterproductive. Mm -hmm. And so I just think that, again, we have been told that we have a lot more control than we have. Now, there is also then the broader society implications, which is if everyone is on these drugs for cosmetic reasons, and again, we're not talking about it for health reasons, like you and your doctor have decided that this is something that is actually going to improve your health outcomes. That is something totally different. But if you have all these celebrities and influencers and housewives and like people who we and our kids look up to, it does shift the beauty standard, right? Final disclaimer here, we want to put a trigger warning on for anyone who is struggling with an eating disorder, working on recovery, because we are going to get into discussions of body size, calorie numbers. So I do want to put that out there. Anyway, with that, let's bring Lindsay on. We have our guest, Lindsay Lesson on, who is a registered dietitian and business owner and just super knowledgeable about all things related to the world of health and food and fertility. So Lindsay, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and we'll kick it off? Yeah. So I've been a registered dietitian for 13 years, which makes me sound ancient, but um, I started my career as most dietitians do in the clinical realm and then kind of ventured out into the health and wellness. I actually was a health and wellness health coach Mm -hmm. in corporate wellness for about seven years. And as I grew in my own health journey and went through my own infertility journey, I kind of started to move away from that and wanted to niche down to help people that I really care about. So what I do today is help women heal from disorders eating and be able to get pregnant. And can you also just explain for people what the difference is between a dietitian and a nutritionist? Because everyone and their mother these days is on Instagram as a nutritionist. Yeah, for sure. So anyone can call themselves a nutritionist. So like Kristen, you're a nutritionist. Jen, you're a nutritionist. I'm actually a certified nutritionist because I, I got my it. personal training certification and I couldn't, I can barely boil water. <laughs> I mean, anyone can be a nutritionist. A registered dietitian is somebody who has a, and they just changed this, so at least a four-year degree in nutrition. It has now moved to a master's program. So we're talking six mm-hmm. or seven years of school studying just nutrition. So we talk about how doctors 
go to medical school and they get less than 20 hours of nutrition. And here we are studying nutrition for literally seven or eight years. On top of that, you have to complete an unpaid dietetic internship. That's 1,200 or 1,500 hours through an accredited hospital and program. And then you have to sit for a national accredited exam for the certification of dietetic registration. And then you have like CPEUs every 10 years that you have to renew. So our credentialing is highly regulated, whereas a lot of other nutrition certifications are not. Got it. Even amongst scientists who are doing research on nutrition, I mean, it's crazy how there's so many different opinions about things, but then when you throw people in who actually haven't necessarily even studied it or worked clinically, I think it just creates even more confusion. And so just making sure people at least understand some of these terms and definitions hopefully helps a little bit. One of the things that Jen and I, we, we've talked about is, you know, and we haven't really addressed this fully, but in general, the world of Wall Street, especially for people coming out of undergrad, there's a lot of things that are inherently unhealthy about it. And so I want to kind of bifurcate this because you have investment banking and then you have the trading floor. Lifestyle and investment banking is set up in such a way so that you graduate and a lot of times people are in college, they've probably been college athletes, and then they get on onto the desk and they're working from like 8, 8, 8.30, to, it could be midnight. They're not getting a lot of sleep. There's a lot of quote unquote FaceTime. So people are literally watching them all the time. Sometimes people feel very uncomfortable about getting up to go take a walk or to go to the gym. You basically get food every night, but you get free food. And so people are like, all right, I'm just going to order stuff. And it would almost be a joke that people felt a little bit like veal because they would be just sort of like sitting there getting fed. At the same time, you also have a lot of people who are very much perfectionists, who are want to be in control, who have this very type A personality that can kind of lead people into very disordered eating. And then on the other side for Jen, she was working more on the trading floor. And so Jen, if you want to just kind of explain the trading floor environment and what you tend to see there, I think that yeah, that would be helpful so to I kind mean, of just like paint the picture. Yeah. So, you know, going onto the trading floor, you'll notice that while there's been such a push for increased diversity in terms of people's backgrounds, racially, ethnically, geographically, there's very little body diversity. And this speaks into a whole bunch of other issues culturally, but it is really rare to find an overweight person on the trading floor. And if they are there, it is not something that is celebrated or welcomed. It is something that can even be treated with derision and open mockery. So the trading floor is this very loud, very open environment where food is a reality of the day. Everyone has to eat lunch. You eat lunch in a row next to everyone. It's actually very unsanitary. They, they like did some study of how disgusting the average trading floor desk is that you're eating your lunch at, and it's like worse than a toilet seat. But you're eating in front of people all the time. There's client entertainment where there's dinners. There's brokers ordering lunch for the entire trading desk, things like that. And so you're under this microscope of your eating habits. You're constantly eating around people. There's eating contests, like eating competitions. There can be diet challenges and contests. Our desk at you know, any given point in time was doing a juice cleanse or people were competing to see how much weight they could lose in 30 days, things like that. I remember one of the hedge funds wanted to weigh me and another saleswoman on our row at the beginning of one month and the beginning of an end and see who weighed less. Oh my you God. know, I mean, all kinds of crazy things. And if there was someone who was overweight... They were typically male and they would be treated with catcalls. You'd hear that on the trading floor. And it was all just part of the culture. 
in this day and age where people feel shocked to hear these things. This was just part of the locker room talk that was very much a, a, a reality of life on the trading floor. And even now when people have, I think, become more sensitive to these things, is going out and the going out culture. And the going out culture on Wall Street, mm -hmm. it's ebbed and flowed over the years and it's taken on different iterations. But entertaining clients is still a big piece of the puzzle, regardless of what part of the industry you're in. Either you're the client, you're the entertainer, you're something. But so much of that human connection, there are different ways to go about it. You can go to a tennis match. You can take the client golfing, whatever it may mm -hmm. be. Yeah, exactly. There are lots of fun ways that stimulate conversation. But the tried and true one is always going out to eat. Right. Right. right? And I found that to be a very sticky spot in navigating my whole personal journey with food because it was like, okay, not only do I have to figure out how to manage my relationship with food on the trading floor in front of all these people all the time, but now I'm required to go out to this really long dinner where it is epic levels of consumption, yeah. right? Of food, of alcohol. And I know it's gotten increasingly okay culturally, which is amazing, to be like, I'm just not drinking tonight. Yeah. I just don't feel like it. But certainly when I was in the industry, that was not an option. Mm -hmm. Unless you were visibly eight months pregnant, people mm -hmm. would be like, shots, you know, like have right. another martini. And that brings about a whole cycle of then not only is your decreased sleep, but then there's the next day hangover yeah. order, right? There's the, what are we all ordering for breakfast on the desk? And there's this cycle of very conspicuous consumption. And navigating a world where you're expected to be very, very thin, yet you're expected to be consuming all of this food in front of people all the time. So they're like that cool girl stereotype, right? Mm -hmm. Of the girl who's like, oh, she only weighs 95 pounds, but she loves to house a cheeseburger, right? Yeah, for like, sure. And she can drink like crazy. Exactly, <laughs> right? That is the Wall Street archetype of the woman, especially in a client-facing role like I was in. And a man, by the way, too. It's supposed to be a man who can do all these things and still look like he's ready to step on stage at the Mr. Olympia. And it's really one of those toxic things that I don't think has been fully resolved. Mm -hmm. Food is so intricately woven into the fabric of how people interact with their jobs on the trading floor. It's totally enmeshed. And that doesn't always create a healthy environment where you can make the choices that you might otherwise make independently. And so I guess what I want to start with is just how could someone who was starting essentially set them up to maintain a, as healthy a lifestyle as possible while also not falling over to the other side, which gets into the eating disorders, disordered eating. And we're going to get to that a little bit later because I, I do want to ultimately speak about the overlap that there probably is between eating disorders and these high power jobs. But let's just start with basics of pretend you're not someone coming from an eating disorder background. What are some things that you can maybe do to improve your health through these early years when there is this expectation and all that? Yeah. I mean, the things that I'm thinking of the most is when most people think about health, they think about two main things. They think about diet and exercise, right? <laughs> right. When in reality, if we think about social determinants of health, things that really impact what someone's health outcome is going to look like in reality, especially in terms of potentially having disease in the future, there's so much more to it than diet and exercise. That's a really small piece of the pie. So we're thinking about stress. We're thinking about sleep. Mm -hmm. We're thinking about access to healthcare. We're thinking about access to healthy foods, right? So my guess is most of the people in this high-level job on the floor or at the desk 
already have a lot of advantages here, right? Because mm, they probably yeah. have 100%. great benefits, great access to healthcare. And so the areas that I think you could really zoom in on would be stress management, sleep, and you know, having an awareness for options for food, right? So mm. If you are ordering out, of course, you have the choice, right, to order something that is more fresh and more whole food based versus something that might be um, a little bit more palpable, higher in fat, mm -hmm. more of like a comfort meal, right? Finding what that healthy balance looks like for you. Maybe that mm -hmm. looks like alternating between a salad and a burger. Maybe that means ordering both salad and a burger, right? So just kind of mm -hmm. thinking about um, your food choices and not necessarily subscribing to the idea that everybody on the trading floor needs to be in a smaller body but just accepting the fact that like, hey, what's healthy for you might look different than what's for someone else. But in those highly competitive environments, I think that this is where it does get tricky because my guess is a lot of the people who are in these positions have the personality type to take things to an extreme. And so that's why I really start with this idea that your health is going to have less to do with the minutes that you're logging in the gym and how few calories that you're eating and more to do with this holistic view of are you sleeping seven to eight hours? Mm. How are you managing your stress? Are you abusing alcohol? Oh, Thinking right. about it in like so many different facets rather than just saying, yeah. oh, you should be exercising X and you should always be, you know, everyone should be on the keto diet. Right. Yeah. It's interesting too, because I think that Jen and I, we were working in finance before this whole intermittent fasting, one meal a day craze started. Women historically have had such a high incidence of disordered eating, eating disorders. And it's become now, I see it a lot in guys who are like, oh, I'm doing like a fast. Oh, I'm doing one meal a day. It's something that I hear about a lot in like the tech bro world. The like Jack Dorsey. Worse. The guys are worse. The guys are way worse than the women. That was always the case too during my day. You know, if, if a guy on the desk was getting married, let's say, everyone would be needling about him all the time. Like, when are you going to get in shape? Like, did you lift today? Like, mm. oh, how many times did you go to the gym? Blah, 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 blah. Whereas if a woman was getting married, I'm going to be like, congratulations. Mm -hmm. And then like not say anything when she's only eating salads for the next three months. And by the way, that was me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like I very much went through this. I mean, at some point during this episode, I think we should all kind of share what our personal history yeah. with this is, mm -hmm. you know, and this is kind of as good a time as any. I mean, me personally, I was a very skinny kid growing up, almost felt mocked for being too skinny, had a very yeah. serious health issue when I was in sixth grade that contributed to that. I had undiagnosed appendicitis for three months and had to relearn how to walk after spending a month in the hospital. And so I had always been so thin. For me, skinny was something that was undesirable. And then a switch flipped when I hit 15. And it was like, oh, I'm constantly going to be doing this yo-yo dieting thing. I grew up in the 90s diet culture. My mom was always on one diet or another, buying People magazine, OK Magazine, Star Magazine. Like, what's the diet that the celebs are doing? You know, it's hard-boiled eggs only this week, and it's Diet Coke only the next week, and cabbage or cayenne pepper or whatever it is. So very much grew up in that environment and never had an eating disorder, capital E, capital D, but had disordered patterns about eating where I would it would take up so much real estate in my brain of what am I eating today? Did I have a good day or not? I'm not going to shower until after I go to the gym, which often results in me like not showering for like 48 hours, like, mm -hmm. you know, because I know I wouldn't make it to the gym or like I ate too much last night for dinner. So I won't eat today. And then overeating at dinner, all those cycles that people go through and have been basically like yo-yoing back and forth in the same 10 pound range for the past, I don't know, 25 years of mm -hmm. my life. 
and we're recording this now in October of 2023. I've just gone through some pretty serious health issues in the past three weeks, both physically and mentally, and lost 10 pounds in the course of three weeks. And that was an awful experience. And I never want to go through that again. It's funny because sometimes the shock of going through something negative can be just the jolt to the brain that you need to be like, what was I wasting all this time and energy on? You know what I'm saying? Like, what was all this nonsense? This was, this was not what I should have been focusing any of my energies on. Yeah, no, I mean, it's funny because I actually know Lindsay because we met when I essentially had to, I I never was diagnosed with an eating disorder. I I probably could have been under like the criteria. I, I don't know, but I just had a very disordered relationship with food. I would exercise an hour a day. I tried to eat as little as possible. And it's something that people become very good at hiding that. So like when I was working in finance, people would tell me, oh, you eat so healthy. And like, it, it's the type of thing where, because you, you look a certain way, right? Like you, you, you look like you're eating a certain way, but like, it, it's actually like what's going on in your head is so messed up and unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And what you're telling yourself is so screwed up probably like for 20 years almost. And then got married and wanted to have kids and was like, shoot, I, I can't have children because <laughs> I had to fix my relationship with food. And that's how I met Lindsay. There was this Facebook support group and it literally was life-changing because it it was, I mean, a blessing in disguise because it forced me to revisit my beliefs about food. We'll talk a little bit later about this idea of set point theory, but for a gosh, since I was probably 14, I believed that if I didn't exercise X amount a day, if I didn't limit my calories to like this very low number that I would balloon up to be this huge size that in my head was unacceptable. And what I learned is that that's not how our bodies work. Our size is determined by so much more than what we think of just like you exercise this amount, you eat this much. Like, no, no, no. Your body like does have these control mechanisms. And so for me, it was such a life-changing thing to go through this and then to come out the other side and be like, oh my gosh, I can eat what I want. I don't have to just eat the salad and like forego the carbs and all that stuff. I don't have to exercise every day. I can just like go for a walk. Heck, I could do nothing. And that's something I learned with kids. Like I can literally just sit on my butt because I have to like watch all also, these Also, what these crazy kid is things. letting you sit on your butt? Like, yeah. let's Fear, well, that's also true. Stop sitting true. for more than about five minutes a day. I mean, I don't think I realized this and I've been friends with Jen since we were six. I I knew your history with the appendicitis and all that. I never even knew that you had this internal dialogue yourself. And I think that's something that so many women, especially people who are like high achievers are probably going through and have these beliefs about that it really kind of takes over your whole life. One of the things that I would love to do is just help people understand that this story we tell ourselves about how our bodies work and all that, a lot of it is kind of driven by nonsense. We have these beliefs that are actually not based in fact. <laughs> what I was going to say from takeaways from both of y'all's stories, which are very similar to mine, is that you have been fed information that makes you believe that you have to eat a certain mm-hmm. way or exercise mm-hmm. X amount, or like you have been fed information that basically tells you that you can't trust your body, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Why do you yeah. think that is? Because people make money off of it. Exactly. Because exactly. 100%. I mean, exactly. this is a podcast about how to make money. I, like, <laughs> you know. I mean, the billions that the diet and what's now called the wellness industry makes off of 
changing the science literally on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And it's that old joke of like, you have the two guys and one's digging the hole on the side of the road and the other one's filling it back in. That's what's happening mentally Mm. every day to us as consumers of this information, whether it be living in the goop era or Mm. the old 90s diet culture that we grew up in. But Lindsay, we touched on something called set point theory. I would love if you could speak to that a little bit and define that for our listeners. It's not something I know a ton about. Yeah. So set point theory is basically just this idea. And there are some pretty solid research studies that look at people who do not score high on like a disordered eating test and kind of follow them over time and have tracked their set point weight. But it's basically the idea that each person has a unique genetic set point weight range that their bodies function most optimally in. And this range is actually kind of broad. So think about the weight that your body seems to always kind of fight to get back to either way, and then add and subtract 10 pounds, right? So we're talking about 20-ish, 25-pound range. Mm -hmm. And I think that this really makes sense for a lot of people. If you really think about it, you went on this diet, you got down to X, and then all of a sudden your weight starts to creep back up to that same weight, right? And Mm -hmm. you know, you talked about this idea of losing and regaining the same 10 pounds. Oh, 100%. I know exactly what my body set point is. It's going back there no matter what I do. Like, (laughs) Right, right. And so it's very interesting, actually, when somebody drops below their set point weight range, the body tries to compensate. So it starts to slow body processes down. Digestion starts to suffer. It's where a lot of women experience a lot of gut issues when they're under eating. And a lot of it has to do with lack of available energy for the body to move food and waste through the digestive you, tract. Um, you, mean, you mean, Lindsay, it's not that they have a gluten sensitivity? It's like they're just under that. eating? It's not that they need, you know, the, the TikTok supplement that the influencer is selling. It's the fact mm-hmm. that they are literally not eating enough food. Um, but you know, another thing that kind of suffers is bone loss for females. You can lose your period or you can experience infertility issues, which I know is a big part of my story and and story too. Brain function, like AKA what is needed to do all of these high power jobs. And anxiety can increase. So like when you're not eating, blood sugar level drops and that kind of compounds anxiety. In addition to that, if you were to lose your cycle and you don't have the normal rise and fall of hormones, that can also play into mood and mood imbalance. And along with the body going into preservation mode, it's also ramping up hunger hormones. And so it Mm -hmm. might feel very hard to maintain this goal weight because your body is literally screaming at you to eat more food. On the flip side, if somebody goes over and above their set point weight, and this gets a little bit murky, especially if somebody is like truly battling some sort of disease state like diabetes or insulin resistance. But in a perfect world, somebody moves outside of their set point weight, going through potentially a time where they couldn't exercise a whole lot for one reason or another, or they went through some trauma and food was just a really easy way to cope. And they go over and above their set point weight range, the body has some mechanisms that will happen when that occurs. It's really interesting, just in observational studies that they've done, that people will start to fidget more when they're operating outside their set point weight range. So the body's like basically encouraging them to move more. Also, Isn't to that like hunger. meats or something? Yeah, like non exercise. Their, their neat goes up, correct. Yeah, non exercise, activity, thermogenesis. There you go. Yeah. Neat. And they'll also have decreases in ghrelin, your hunger hormone. And so the body is always, I think that if you are 
really in tune with listening to your body and doing generally healthy things, your body is going to kind of land where it wants to land Mm -hmm. in that season. Again, plus or minus 10 pounds based upon your life stage. Do you have three kids at home and you never sit down? (laughs) Kind of makes sense that you might be, you know, a little bit lower on your set point weight range. Are you... In your 60s versus your 20s, we would probably be higher on the set point weight range as we age. That's just Mm -hmm. kind of a natural thing that happens. It's so interesting. I actually, I listened to a podcast, I think it was with like Dr. Peter Atia, who was saying that one of the reasons that people tend to gain weight, one of the theories is that like when you get older, it's like you want that extra padding because if you do get cancer, if you have a fall, like that extra padding, that extra fat is actually like protective, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's so interesting because we live in this world again, where people conflate thinness for health. Like those are not the same thing. And I think that that was something I wanted to even open up as people are thinking about what can I do to be healthy? I think so often we equate being healthy with losing weight. And I mean, this is something Mm -hmm. I saw back in my corporate wellness health coaching days is every single time somebody wanted to get healthier. It was like, well, how do I lose weight? Can you give me a diet plan? What do I do about this? Mm -hmm. And I mean, the reality is, is that People are pursuing weight loss and they are not getting healthier in the process. Mm -hmm. We'll see some short-term weight loss, but oftentimes within five years or so, 98% of dieters are gaining the weight back. Mm -hmm. Two thirds of those people who gain the weight back are actually gaining back more weight than when they started the diet in the first place. What happens when you refeed a body that has been underfed for a period? Yeah. Yeah. So your body's always going to adapt to the amount of fuel that you give it. So... I think we can talk calories on this show, so I'm just going to go for it. You eat 1,200 calories, right? That seems to be the magic number that every single woman in America needs to eat to lose weight. Why were we told 1,200 (laughs) calories? Oh, my God. That number was, like, seared into my brain in the late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. The number's arbitrary, right? So 1,200 calories. You eat this amount, and you do so for six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, whatever. And, you know, you hit your goal. And as time goes on, you might find that it's really hard to maintain that because, A, that's not enough food for a grown human woman. That's enough Mm -hmm. food for like a two to three year old Um, (laughs) or maybe not even. And yeah, I was going to say my seven year old is way past 1200 calories a day. Yeah. Um, But what happens is the body slows your metabolism down. So you started the diet and your body naturally burns X. And then you start eating 1200 calories for 12 weeks and your metabolism comes down here to meet it. Right. And now you Mm -hmm. think, oh my gosh, I'm at my goal weight. So, you know, I can go back to eating whatever I want. Well, as you Mm -hmm. do that and your calorie intake increases, your metabolism is still down here. So it's very easy to gain weight once your metabolism Mm -hmm. has adapted to 1200 calories or whatever the magic number is. Yeah. And I think like there was the whole research on the biggest loser where Mm -hmm. people who had gone on that show and lost significant amounts of weight, their metabolism had just been completely shot. I think that this is something that we're totally ignoring. And as a segue, I I think we're going to see this with Ozempic years down the road. It's like biggest loser all over again with the Ozempic. We're putting people, I mean, I've heard reports that people are eating as little as 700 calories while taking Ozempic. And so it's like, what happened then is going to happen again in the future. We're just not there yet. Well, I mean, it makes complete sense because with Ozempic, it's not changing your set point. Jen, I think you were talking about how there was that Bloomberg Business Week article Mm -hmm. on how essentially Ozempic is now obviously trickling into the broader markets. And there is so much discussion about how is this going to affect 
Like, what are the knock-on effects for other markets? So you have Scott Galloway saying he thinks this is going to be bigger than AI. You have Laura Debkin, a plastic surgeon, say everyone's going to be on this. It's going to be like Botox, right? This drug that just makes you lose weight, makes you eat significantly less than your body probably needs, by the way, doesn't change your set point. If Unless you, you stay on the medication for the rest of your life and keep and paying this pharmaceutical company a fortune. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that sounds like a great business plan for them. Mm-hmm. Right. But again, I just feel like the knock-on effects for women who ultimately want to have kids, for men, it's not just like, hey, this is great because planes need less fuel. It's, okay, for this (laughs) massive population that really shouldn't be on it. And again, this isn't a judgment because we live in this highly fat-phobic society where thinness is glorified, where being a certain body size is rewarded and you absolutely are going to be treated differently if you are in a smaller body. And so for people who want that, there is nothing wrong with that. It's like a natural human emotion to be like, I want to do the thing that's going to make me look a certain way. I want to fit in. I want to not be treated poorly because of something that I genetically like just can't control, even though everyone, by the way, thinks I can control it. So I I want to hold space for the fact that there are very real reasons why people want to do that. That's not people who are doing anything wrong. I totally get it. But I just think the actual health consequences of it are possibly different than just getting some Botox injections because it's going to be messing with your health long-term if you are in the population where it's for cosmetic reasons. For sure. These drugs aren't all bad, right? So these drugs were initially designed to help people with insulin resistance, better control Mm -hmm. their blood sugar. And in using these drugs in this population, it was discovered, hey, these people are losing a ton of weight. Now, insulin resistance will absolutely prevent you from losing weight, right? So people who were like, oh, just Mm -hmm. eat better, just exercise more. If somebody's battling insulin resistance, they are constantly having an uphill battle with ever trying to actually lose weight and lose fat and reverse that. It was a very challenging battle. So with this drug, they've discovered, hey, not only does this improve blood sugar control, but also too, these people are losing weight. Why is that? And what they discovered is yeah. that there's an appetite suppressing effect. So in the right individual, these medications used with healthy habit change are awesome and great and yeah. can be a wonderful thing. That being said, these medications also should not be available to every individual who may or may not have any business losing weight, especially yes. if someone has a history of an eating disorder. I think the other benefit that I have seen touted with these drugs as well is that there's potentially promise for addiction. Um, So Mm -hmm. people who are struggling with alcoholism, who are struggling with drugs, and I want to be careful because then there is the quote unquote food addiction, which I would love for you to touch on as well, Lindsay, because I, I think that that's something that's controversial. There is the benefit there for people that absolutely could benefit for, for real. I mean, this is the week that Matthew Perry, he passed away on, on Sunday and was very vocal about struggling with addiction. He just couldn't kick it. And it's like, if he had been able to, to get on something like this, could that have made a difference? I mean, mm-hmm. there's clearly very real potential benefits, but then there's also the potential downside. All the press that I have seen, it's just like, wow, these drugs are amazing. I literally heard someone say, we should be putting this in the water. And it's like, no, 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 no. There's not the nuanced discussion of there's potentially real benefits and real benefits for real people. And then the other side of losing weight is not always all good. So anyway, I guess if you can just talk a little bit about the addiction piece and the sort of quote unquote food addiction, because I think that that's something. Well, and I'd be really interested to know about if they have a proposed mechanism as to why these drugs help with addiction, but putting on my dietitian glasses and thinking about food addiction which is a Mm -hmm. controversial topic. A lot of times people are trying to treat food addiction with diets. Mm 
And what we know about diets is the more that you deprive the body of adequate energy, the more mm -hmm. that somebody is going to be tempted to binge. Also, right. too, the more that someone is mentally restricted. So you can eat whatever you want, but you can't actually eat the things that you really want, right? Like eat the burger without the bun, go get the low carb wrap, have the Halo Top ice cream, right? What we know is that if somebody is craving a specific food, but they're not allowed to eat that, what does that do to cravings? It makes them mm -hmm. out of control. Hence, You're just telling people... them don't think about the pink elephant. Right. Like the, Hence making yeah. people feel like they are addicted to food. Mm, so maybe. there are definitely instances where someone perhaps has been through a very traumatic event and food is something that they turn to to cope with the trauma that they have been through. And this is not a bad thing. I think that there is a lot of shame and stigma around using food as a coping mechanism. And I just mm -hmm. want to speak plainly here that like we all emotionally eat, right? You drink champagne at a wedding, you eat cake on your birthday. Do our bodies need mm -hmm. those foods to function? No, but they taste good and they allow for human connection. Yes. So, and also, isn't it messed up to be saying, no, I can't have that cake because I'm on a diet. Then you're also not connecting. You're not participating in something that could actually be really good for you. And you're probably too, obsessing you know? over the fact that you can't eat it and everybody can. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the yeah. whole idea of food addiction is a little bit controversial because is it that somebody is truly addicted to the food or is it that they have disordered eating or an eating disorder going on? Also, too, is it really the food that they're addicted to or are they craving human connection? Are they craving, mm -hmm. are they using food as a way to isolate? Are they using eating as a way to, we talk about people being through abuse and things like that, a lot of times they will almost self-sabotage in a sense that like, I don't want to be intimate with anyone again. And mm -hmm. so here I am going to overfeed myself so that I'm undesirable according to the public. And so I think that this issue is a lot more complex than somebody just eats nine boxes of Oreos because they have no willpower. Yeah, no, that's... Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, with any of these addictions, right? If you want to get plastic surgery to fix something with your body or your face that you don't like, I am a big believer in that. Make all the changes you want to your body. I've had plastic surgery. I am a big proponent of it if that makes you happy. But the caveat is if it makes you happy. And is that really all that needed to change in your life? Did you really just need to change your nose? And that was the one thing that was missing for you to feel validation? Or was there something deeper going on? And that's why you see these shows that focus on like, I'm addicted to plastic surgery. I've turned myself into Border Collie or Barbie doll or whatever it is, right? Um, I mean, we joke about these things, but are you treating a symptom of something that's a much bigger problem or are you treating the problem itself? And I think that that's the moral hazard that you run into a little bit with Ozempic and all these things for cosmetic reasons. Mm -hmm. Again, if you want to take Ozempic and lose 10 pounds or whatever it is, how about it? I'd like to think that I wouldn't judge you for that and be like, you know what? That's what you needed to do to feel better. Absolutely. But is everything cured now that you lost that 10 pounds? Was that all you needed? Was it just that 10 pounds? Is everything now great in your life? Is your relationship with food completely whole now that you lost that 10 pounds? Like, did that really solve what you were looking to solve? Or mm -hmm. did you just lose 10 pounds that you might gain back and nothing really changed in the broader cycle of your life? Mm -hmm. That's the moral hazard that we run with this is continuing to mask much deeper problems that haven't really been addressed at all. Well, not just that though, but I think again, back to this whole idea with the set point theory, you can go on something like this and then if and when you end up going off, 
you're likely going to regain that weight. And I think that there is a really large psychological toll that having your body size change can take on people. I mean, I've experienced it when I was younger. And then, I mean, going through pregnancy, like you, mm-hmm. you gain 40 pounds and then you like lose four. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. this like crazy thing that I think people don't necessarily realize can affect them as much as it can. You go out into the real world and people are commenting and saying nice things about you and treating you differently. And then you go off of this drug and all of a sudden it goes back to how it was. It's the second order effect of but when you go off of it or your body gets used to this lower caloric intake and, and now I have to go on a stronger dose of this thing, it just seems like, okay, so now you're eating even less. I feel like it's this cascading effect. Well, and to circle back and speak a little bit more to the using Ozempic to treat addictive traits, mm-hmm. people who develop eating disorders also struggle with addiction. It is literally the same root problem is the addiction mm-hmm. to control, the addiction to shrinking your body size, the addiction to validation of the body comments. So if somebody goes on a Zempic to treat a addiction to alcohol, what is the likelihood Mm -hmm. that they are going to develop an eating disorder? My guess is pretty high Mm -hmm. because they already have the personality trait and the stage is set. And with the food restriction and the weight loss, it's almost like the perfect storm. So maybe just trading one addiction for another. That's or the way, yeah, yeah. That's the way for both in place so that if you go off the medicine, everything just comes rushing back. Kristen, you sent me a podcast the other day that I listened to that suggested some studies had found that people who were taking Ozempic relative to their counterparts who were simply losing weight from a change in diet, that of the weight that they lost, someone who was simply losing weight from changing their eating habits alone of the weight that they lost, something like 20% of that weight would be from lean muscle. They had found that something more like 40% of the weight loss accounted for by using these drugs was coming from the destruction of lean muscle. Is there any validity to that? And what are the potential consequences of that? Yeah. So the research study, it was a clinical trial done over 68 weeks and they tracked the difference in, I think it was like 141 people who completed the study. Pretty good size, pretty good length of study. And yes, the people who took Ozempic did lose more weight, but the amount of weight that came from lean muscle mass was closer to 40%. I think it was 38%. So that's pretty high, but that actually makes a lot of sense if somebody is severely restricting their calorie intake. So the way that the body kind of prioritizes weight loss, so we're not talking about body composition, we're talking about strictly weight, is it's going to first come from your fat stores. And typically fat stores from your blood and from your liver and like places that you probably could lose weight. So like that's why we see um, people lowering their triglycerides when they lose weight. Triglyceride being like a storage form of fat in the blood. So we're going to first go from fat because, you know, the body needs some fat to survive. A lot of us might have some extra fat stores. There's good and bad that comes with that. But as calories are restricted very severely, then we actually start to lose some of our lean muscle mass. And this isn't great if we think about aging, because then people are more at risk for muscle imbalances and potentially injury. This also isn't great for our metabolism. Because as your lean mass goes down, your metabolism Mm -hmm. also goes down. So this is also why strength training can be so helpful for people as they age, as they help combat that natural drop-off in metabolic rate that happens as we get older. So if people are losing, we'll say 10 pounds on Ozempic and 40% of that is lean mass, well, then that just adds more validity to the idea that somebody is taking Ozempic and killing their metabolism. On that article, the Krispy Kreme one, it was actually really crazy how... 
you literally could see so much of just the most toxic comments in that the article. Like of that was terrifying. And like, we've been reading a lot of posts about what's going on in the world. People are more impassioned about Krispy Kreme donuts and and the concept of fat or not fat than yeah. they are about what's going on in the Middle East. It's crazy. I mean, it kind of speaks to just this culture we live in where there's morality in food. It's like, oh, you're eating poison. Who would buy that? Shaming people who take it, which back to the point that you had made, Lindsay, there are people that really need it. If you have insulin resistance, you could be dieting a ton, killing yourself, trying to lose weight because you go to the doctor and they say, lose weight. And you're like, yes, I've heard this a thousand times. I know I'm supposed to lose weight and they're trying, but they can't. People can be in larger bodies for things that are again, totally outside of their control. I also want to interject yeah. that people can be in larger bodies and be totally healthy. Exactly. Yes. Yes. I don't know if you ever listened to maintenance phase with Aubrey Gordon. So she's like a fat activist and she was mm -hmm. talking about how, first of all, this is a woman who has lived in a larger body her whole life. She's been on every single diet under the sun. There is essentially nothing like she hasn't tried. And she was saying, people will tell me, oh, have you gone on Ozempic? And she's like, of course I've gone on, I've gone on it four times, but she was like, also, I, th four I forget times. what times. Oh. Yeah. She, she tried it a bunch of times. It also is not going to get rid of people who are in larger bodies and that shouldn't be the goal. And she's like, it's really insulting that people are like, I want to get rid of fat people. And by the way, I want to be clear. People who are fat activists use the term fat to describe themselves. They're trying to reclaim that. So I'm trying to use that term because that's what I know she likes people to use. But she also was like, even if I was on it and it was working, if I lose 40% of my body fat, and again, I know overweight and obese are terms that people don't love to use either, but she was like, I'm going to use the medical context. If I am quote unquote obese because I'm 300 pounds and I lose 20% or whatever it is, I'm still going to quote unquote be obese. I I'm not going to be now a size two. And again, to your point, Lindsay, like you can be perfectly healthy and in a larger body. And that is what body diversity and size diversity is all about. For some people, it can be a consequence of having a certain health condition. In other cases, it's their body size. It doesn't have to be fixed. Yeah. I've just read about so many things lately about somebody in a larger body goes to their doctor complaining of symptom X, Y, and Z. And they're like, you just need to lose weight. You just need to lose weight. And they're like fed this information yeah. for seven to eight months. We'll come to find out they have cancer and they're right. just being dismissed and ignored because they're always just told, oh, well, it's just because you're fat or it's because you need to lose right. weight or because you're not exercising. Right. And I've seen a lot of studies where people are looking at this negative health outcomes. A lot of times, part of the reason you see these negative health outcomes is because people are less willing to go to the doctor because they're like, I don't need to hear that I need to lose weight again, or I know I'm going to go to the doctor and they're just going to dismiss me because of exactly what you said. And <laughs> bringing it back to where we started this conversation about what we yeah. see in the workplace and what we see on Wall Street in this environment where you hit the nail on the head, Lindsay, when you said it's not like these people have lack of access to resources or healthcare or anything like that. So in an environment where it's already rare to see body diversity in the workplace, for those people who are in bigger bodies in this industry, how must they feel now when it's like, why haven't you gone on Ozempic being a question that somebody might ask someone else? I, I don't imagine that this is going to make body diversity something that becomes more celebrated in these environments. I imagine it's something that's going to continue to work towards its erasure. And I think if we are moving towards a world where people from more backgrounds than ever are being welcomed into the workplace, it feels like this is the one area where the window is continuing to narrow.
It feels like it's one step forward, one step back. Because you guys even brought up the body positivity movement, right? I think it's important for people to really understand that the body positivity movement was never intended for thin white women, right? It was for women mm-hmm. of color, particularly women in larger bodies, the people who are in marginalized bodies to yeah. love and accept the body that they're in. And then it was kind of hijacked by social media mm-hmm. influencers. And now everyone's like, hashtag body positivity and showing their six pack. And it's like, well, no, this wasn't for you. So it's like every yeah. single thing that we're trying to do to have more size diversity, then there's Ozempic. Okay. And Ozempic used in a term where it sounds like almost what I'm reading is the target market for Ozempic is people trying to lose 10 pounds, right? Like not people who are trying to move from a BMI of 35 to a BMI of 30. Right. Obviously, one of the criticisms of people going on the drugs, this was maybe a couple of months ago, was that there was then not the availability, not the supply for people who really needed it. Right. But now it's like Weight Watchers has... Or- WW, I don't know, they rebranded. They've come on the scene and they're handing it out. And like, there's all these different people who are like, oh, like we now will give you a prescription. So can you talk a little bit about where are people actually getting that drug if there's shortages? Yeah, so it's so interesting. So this is from the FDA website. And they said that when a drug is in shortage, compounders may be able to prepare a compounded version of the drug if they meet certain requirements from the FDA. And Ozempic and Wagobi were both listed on this drug shortage list. So drug compounding is when they are combining, mixing, or altering ingredients from a medication to meet the individual needs of a patient. And it's typically combining two or more different drugs, but compounded drugs aren't FDA approved. And so what's been happening with Wagovi and Ozempic is that they aren't the original formulation that actually most of the research studies are supporting for these greatly touted effects. And so mm-hmm. I think it's just kind of like a buyer beware, right? So like, are you getting your medication from Weight Watchers <laughs> or are you getting it from a doctor, from an actual prescription? And if you are getting it from WW or maybe your cosmetic surgeon, if you are getting these drugs, just maybe weighing the pros and cons for you, is it worth it being laced with something that you're not comfortable putting in your body? And I think that time will tell with this, what are the long-term consequences? I mean, I know that there have been some health concerns that have been raised, but one of the ones that I'm thinking of from a nutrition lens is just the fact that they delay gastric emptying. So food Mm -hmm. is sitting in your stomach longer than it needs to, potentially in your small intestine longer than it needs to. It's fermenting and it can cause a disruption in your gut bacteria. So you might be 10 pounds lighter, but you might have horrible gut issues as a result. Again, you know, if your MO is I want to be 10 pounds lighter before my wedding, this might be the drug for you. But I do think that you kind of have to weigh the pros and cons and then make an informed decision and recognize your body Mm -hmm. autonomy and you can do what you want. I just don't think that it is very sexy to talk about the side effects and the trickle down effects from a negative standpoint. I also don't think that that's great for the industry of these drugs and their money making capabilities. And so it's just, it's just not what you're hearing about. Well, it's so funny because this one podcast that I'd said to Jen, they're a finance focused podcast. And so they were talking about the stock price and the, the market value kind of reflects the best case scenario that like everyone's on it and everyone is the best case scenario that everyone's on it forever. 
I mean, that is a good point, but maybe not. No thyroid cancer or whatever, because I think there's been some noise about possible side effects there. And that this guy was like, I personally wouldn't invest in that. But all these people are now looking at the downstream effects where it's, okay, what is the effect for the airline industry? They have less, they have to pay on fuel. And then what is the effects on Krispy Kreme? Okay, it's getting downgraded. I mean, that was literally what we saw today. If someone's an investor, I'm just going to say, maybe look into the negative effects on what happens when people have an eating disorder. Or like, if you want to invest, get in and get out. (laughs) Because I bet it's going to be different in 10 years. It's interesting, right? I mean, there was trading in the time of COVID and you were supposed to say, what are all the COVID trades at the beginning of Mm -hmm. COVID? It was invest in the housing market, invest in Peloton and invest Mm -hmm. in Zoom, all these work from home things, short commercial real estate and boom, there's your recipe. Now it's Mm -hmm. investing in the time of Ozempic and it's okay, short everything from entertainment, going out to dinner. You're not going out to dinner if you're on Ozempic. You're not going to spend... You don't want to eat and you don't want to drink. On a meal. Yeah. Exactly. You're not going to be spending your money on Budweiser, but just an equal measure. Like you said, you're not going to have the energy to work out, right? Peloton, I'm not sure Peloton stock can get any lower. I own it. I believed in the company. I loved Peloton. I've always loved Peloton. I still love Peloton, but like not, not my greatest investment of all time. Who's signing up for Orange Theory, right? I mean, maybe, maybe it's a boon to the clothing industry because people are buying new clothes for their new bodies. But I mean- Or maybe people- are like, I need to now do some weight training because I'm losing all this muscle mass. Or a drop off, right? Because why would you go to the gym if you can lose weight just starving yourself? Well, I mean, this is terrible. But when I was younger, Jen knows this. I had to go work out every single day. Every single day I had to do an hour, hour and a half, two hours of cardio. The amount of money that I spent on exercise classes. I think the membership was like $500 a month. I mean, it was crazy the amount of money I would spend to go to these spinning classes. Because again, I was like, I have to work out this amount. And then when I was able to recover, I was like, oh, I don't need to work out. So guess what? I do whatever yoga from home and I'll go for walks. And like, I do stuff that I just like enjoy doing, but I'm not spending all this money on going to my spinning class or going to Bikram yoga because I think I have to do it. I'm basically finding joyful movement because I'm just like trusting my body. Not that Ozempic, it's like, oh, you're trusting your body. It's like, now it actually is probably the opposite. It's just because you don't, you're sort of suppressing your body's signals. But yeah, I think when the disconnect happens where people believe that you have to exercise to be a certain size, I think that the motivation to work out goes away. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I would be shorting some that. workout stocks. I do think it's exciting to think about having more Gen Z people enter the workspace because I do see this generation just being more informed yeah. and having the potential for turning some things around. You know, you talked about Mm -hmm. just like the verbiage that was thrown around on the trading floor about berating people in larger bodies. If Gen Z wants to be the generation that's set aside of like, we are the generation of inclusivity, whether it's reproductive rights, whether it's racial rights, et cetera. If we can bring some of that size inclusivity in and breaking away from weight bias, like this could potentially be the tipping point for some of these things to probably not be eradicated, but at least be better than they were, you know, for Mm. us in the 90s and early 2000s. And so I think that with that, this is kind of like setting the stage and thinking about what helps you to be your best self. Do you actually feel good when you're downing, you know, five martinis and then you have to go to work the next day? Right. And so- Getting kind of back to like your true and authentic self and what values you have at your core and are you living in alignment with those or not? Maybe it'll be Gen Z who kind of gets us out of this freaking everyone has to be the smaller size. I mean, we were talking last week with this recruiter how 
the private equity recruiting process had gotten pushed earlier and earlier. And then eventually like they just stood up and they said, no, like we're not doing this. And, you know, it was funny because I was talking to another friend about just like, why is it that the sort of standard of beauty is thinness? And again, I'm not sure how true this is, but she said that it went back to, I think like the Victorian era, because for a man, if they had a wife that was so thin and so frail that they didn't work, that was a status symbol. Mm. And so that was sort of what started that women have to be this small size thing. And at the same time, now it's if everyone, quote unquote, can be this smaller size, which by the way, we've already established like you can't, but if there's the perception of that, then all of a sudden are people just like, I want to feel good. I want to be the size that I'm supposed to be. I mean, I don't know, maybe like we get out of this where people are just like, F that. It's like the sneeches, right? That's exactly like, right. Star on, say, star off. <laughs> if you guys haven't read this, this is my favorite children's book to explain basically all of human psychology. It's by Dr. Seuss. It's called The Sneeches. And on the beach, there's the sneeches. And some of the sneeches have stars on their bellies and some of them do not. And so this guy comes along with the star on machine and gives stars to all the sneeches who don't have them who were looked down upon. And then all the sneeches who originally had stars say, well, now we want them off because now everyone can have them. Now we don't want it. And that's exactly what Kristen and I had this conversation when, Kristen, you were the first person who told me about Ozempic. Because Amanda Hirsch was like commenting about it because she follows all the celebrities and was like, this is going to be huge. Well, apparently everyone in Hollywood has been on it for like five years. I mean, it all makes sense, right? Remember, it was like Kim Kardashian magic. Like every time Kim Kardashian changes something about herself and it's like, no, scientific procedure exists to allow this. Just wait six months and then it'll be mainstreamed because this is what she was like secretly being the guinea pig for, I guess. like Investing in with her sky equity. But yeah, so I do wonder if this elusive goal of thinness is now available for the price of an Ozempic prescription, will it be such a highly valued thing, right? If everyone can have it, is it special anymore? If that was the only thing that was really setting you apart, if that was your only defining characteristic... Well, now you're not so special anymore. What else have you got? Well, right. And again, if now people are realizing just going on this drug, under eating, and then the health consequences that come with that, maybe people also break the automatic connection between thinner equals healthier. That is not true. So in this context of talking about people who go through this extreme weight loss or weight loss for any reason, whether it's weight loss from disordered eating, whether it's weight loss from one of these inhibitors or something like that, is there a safe way? to refeed as someone who's maybe going on a recovery from say an eating disorder, right? Is there a safe way for them to get to be able to get to that point where, like you said, you eat whatever you want, you have a healthy metabolism. Is there a safe way to go about that? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a whole concept of intuitive eating, right? There's 10 principles of intuitive eating that walk you through. How do you get away from the messages you've been fed about distrusting your body? Why were these messages here in the first place? How do you filter them out? And then how do you start adopting mindful eating practices, like tuning into your hunger and fullness before a meal, midway through a meal, towards the end of a meal? How can you start incorporating in some gentle nutrition, get more color on your plate? Are you getting protein, right? So there's like this whole like sequential method. And I work with a lot of people on this, on getting away from restricting and dieting and in the context of the clients that I work with is it it is refeeding, right? It is like putting on body fat. It is working through body image issues, but then eventually getting to a place where 
eating is easy and it's fun and you don't have to overthink everything and you don't have to exercise for hours in the gym. So yeah. And more of my career as a dietitian was like pro-intentional weight loss. So for me to be at this place where I'm like, no, that doesn't work is, yeah. is really interesting. And to your point, Kristen, I would read about set point weight theory and I would be like, well, I don't like that because I can, I can weigh whatever I want. Like I've, I have so much willpower, you know, so it almost made me mad. And I still see people. You're like, my set point's going to be whatever I set it at, not something else. Mm. Yeah. So I understand like why people wrestle with that. But again, the research on all of this stuff is really interesting. And I mean, this makes sense, right? We haven't made a dent in making Americans smaller, yet we have been feeding them diet after diet after diet after diet. In my eyes, Ozempic is just this new thing. It's going to come and go and there's going to be something new. I think this has applications well above and beyond as we've talked about. I mean, we've only spent a fraction of our time talking about, you know, the industry that we're usually focused on. But I think it's really important because this is universally applicable to people who are in any industry, in any walk of life, any body. This mm-hmm. is something that a lot of us are grappling with and trying to figure out how we navigate all of this and reconcile all of these competing concepts together. So we definitely want to have you back on here. You've been such a voice of, of wisdom and, mm-hmm. and we're just really, really grateful for you. Lindsay has like the most incredible social media account that is for anyone looking to recover and try to get to a much healthier place with food. So can you share with our listeners, all the ways that people can find you. Yeah. Well, thanks for taking a detour with me today. Take on message, like eating disorders are on the rise. So they're affecting up to 9% of the population. I think that that's actually highly underreported because they're hard to diagnose. But Mm. I think that there's important information for anybody, especially somebody in their early to mid twenties. This is important information, especially women, especially women in high performing, high stress jobs. If you want to connect with me more, I'm most active on Instagram at food.freedom.fertility. That handle is the same on TikTok. And -hmm. if you want to know anything more about what I do or just like my own journey with food and fertility, you can learn more on my website, www.foodfreedomandfertility.com. Thank you so much. And I know you have a podcast as well. I do. Is that What's also your podcast food? called? It is the Period Recovery and Fertility Podcast. Well, thank you so much. This was absolutely incredible. Lindsay, again, we are so grateful for your insight, your wisdom, your scientific knowledge, and for sharing all of this. For those of you who are eager for us to get back to our conventional conversations about Wall Street, I promise you we have more of that in store. But hopefully you found this was a really educational detour. Thanks again, and uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. Bye, guys. Thank you so much for listening to The Wall Street Skinny. We are more than just a podcast. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at The Wall Street Skinny. If you're a visual learner, we have content that will help get you up the curve from valuation to Excel to Bond Fundamentals 101. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where we will be publishing in-depth tutorials on all this and more. 